0: G'day everybody. Welcome to episode six of Lighting a Candle and Lighting a Candle for Democracy. Australian politics from nineteen sixty seven to nineteen seventy seven, the Whitlam Years. The title of this episode is Labour in Vain, Part One. Firstly, I'd like to acknowledge the Ngunnawal people who are the traditional custodians of the Canberra Regional Land on which much of this podcast is based. I pay respect to the elders of the Ngunnawal Nation, both past and present, and extend this respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples listening to this podcast today. Just to recap on the last episode, we went through the events following Harold Holt's disappearance into the sea on 17 December 1967, and the resulting leadership machinations that would result in John Gorton taking over as Prime Minister of Australia. This episode is part one of a deep dive into the Australian Labor Party, Australia's oldest political party. We will look at the tumultuous history of a political party that has survived three devastating splits in its relatively short history, and how it would shape the Australian Labor Party of January of 1968. I was going to try and put this all into one episode, but I found that I could not have given this subject justice in just one part, so I've separated this in to two different episodes. The Australian Labour Party was, and indeed is, a divided and contradictory unit. It is amusing to hear some political, modern political commentators talk of left and right, as if p- political ideology was ever that simple. Labor would embody this contradiction into its policy makeup. The party would champion social reforms in the early part of the 20th century, but yet could still promote such blatantly racist immigration restriction policies right up until the mid 1960s. They would campaign strongly on Australian nationalism, yet, after the Second World War, would play a leading part in the formation of the United Nations. Finally, Despite many years in opposition, it would still be able to have an influence in pol- on policies even when they were in opposition. By 1968, Labor had only been in power at a federal level for about 17 years since Australia's federation in 1901. In fact, Labor in January of 68 had not occupied government at a federal level for almost two decades. Its leader, Edward Gough Whitlam, had narrowly escaped being expelled from the Labour Party after criticising its national executive. Legend has it that Whitlam would single-handedly save the ALP from electoral oblivion and inevitably lead it back into power in 1972. Well, it's not quite as simple as that. However, before going into that, we need to examine the, the Australian Labor Party's history and why it was in the predicament that it was in 1968. So, let's go back in time to the colourful and amazing characters that would be a part of this party's history. Billy the Rat Hughes. Jack Stubber Beasley. Eddie Ward, who threw a punch at Cough Whitlam once and missed. Jack Lang, the big fella. Red Ted Theodore and Herbert the Doc Evatt. The roots of the Australian Labor Party would form during the great mining boom that would last from 1850 to 1890. The Australian population during this period would quadruple with migrants pouring into the country attracted by the allure of gold. The men that migrated to Australia would dig into the alluvial ground hoping to make their fortune. They were individuals who only needed their own equipment, like a pick and a shovel. But by 1870, most of his alluvial or shallow gold had been depleted. And this would mean that gold would now have to be retrieved far deeper below the soil. This would require extensive equipment and capital and would require also a considerable financial investment that only big companies would be able to provide. The romantic era of the digger was gradually ending and with miners now being employed in large organisations. These miners would work in terrible conditions, working 10 hour shifts with virtually no safety regulations. As a result of this, by 1874, the miners would form a union the Amalgamated Miners Association of Victoria. Shearers, who also worked in similar conditions as their mining comrades, would form their own union, which would be later known as the Australian Workers' Union. By 1890, workers in other labour-intensive industries, including building, ironworking, and the maritime industries, would have their own unions formed. The trade unions had grown in size and influence through to the 1880s. These were boom times for Australia, particularly marvellous Melbourne, which had seen its wealth grow as a result of the mining boom and a flourishing building program in the Victorian colony. However, the boom could not last forever. By 1890, the price of Australia's commodities began to fall. Foreign investment dried up, and the banking system in Victoria would collapse. The economy in Australian the economy in the Australian colonies as a whole went into a very deep depression. In eighteen ninety two to eighteen ninety three, the Australian colonies would see their gross domestic product or GDP fall by seventeen to eighteen percent.
1: It was under these
0: dire economic conditions that would lead to employers challenging the union movement. The unions in the Australian colonies that included miners, shearers and transport workers had formed what was known as the Australian Labor Federation. The union movement over the previous years had become more powerful, representing its workers and improving conditions. The squatters and the employers, however, would now be in a far more powerful position with the increases in unemployment that had occurred in the first in the last decade of the nineteenth century. These, the bosses were now going to take on the growing union movement and put them in their place. The battleground would start in Queensland with the squatters taking on the question of unions representing shearing workers. This was not just about workers' conditions. It was a fundamental question of the union's legitimacy. As a result, the shearers' unions would go on strike. The industrial action would spread to the other Australian colonies, with the maritime, rural and transport work industries joining what would become known as the Great Strike. Industry was coming to a standstill, and there were demonstrations by strikers in the major urban centres. The employers, however, would only have one ally. Would have one ally that the unions did not have. That was political influence. The colonies' governments would take the employers' side and view the strike action as a direct threat to law and order. Legislation was passed to end the strike action. Union leaders were jailed. Demonstrations by strikers are put down and non-union labor was used to replace striking workers. By early 1891, the strike was broken, and as a result of the severe economic depression, there was a glut of available workers. The employers were now in a stronger position than ever before with the union's influence broken. The union movement had been naive in thinking that the industrial action alone achieve their ends it would be a valuable lesson for the labor movement they needed a political arm in april 1891 not long after the end of the great strike a labor electoral league was founded in new south wales At the 1891 New South Wales colony election, this new Labour Party would form, would be able to win 35 seats. It was not enough for the new party to achieve power, but they were able to hold a balance of power with its new members determining who the new government would be. By 1900, on the eve of Federation, the young Labour Party had representatives in almost all of the colonies. The Federal Labour Party would evolve after Federation in 1901. In the first Australian parliamentary elections of 1901, Labor would win 16 seats, 16 seats in the House of Representatives and eight in the Senate. By the start of the first decade of the 20th century, the Labor Party was heading the governments of Australia at a federal level, New South Wales, Western Australia and South Australia labor had not been in power the whole time but they were able to exercise an influence that exceeded exceeded their numbers the opening decade of federation was an unstable time in federal politics there will be eight changes in prime minister with a free trade protectionist and liberal just, be, just remember, however, the, when I talk about liberal, this was the old liberal party, so this was before the modern liberal party, and what would be called the conservative side of politics. And amassed against them, of course, was the Labour Party. What would make the Labour Party unique was that the members of parliament were expected to give a pledge. Here's a sample, and I quote I hereby pledge myself not to oppose any selected candidate. I also pledge myself if returned to the Commonwealth Parliament to do my utmost to ensure the carrying out of the principles embodied in the federal labor platform and on all such questions to vote as a majority of the federal labor party may decide at a duly constituted caucus meeting." This would go against the traditional ideas of liberal democracy, in which members of parliament voted with their conscience and represented their election. This would prove to be one of the great strengths, but also one of the weaknesses of the Australian Labor Party. It would allow the Australian Labor Party to provide a strong and reliable block of votes, which would give Labor an influence over Australian politics, even when they're, over, even when they're at their very lowest point. Indeed, by the time of the first decade of Federation had passed, Labor had achieved significant policy objectives, including a consolidation arbitration of workers' pay and conditions, as well as tariff and other protection for industries that guarantee that their workers would be paid a fair wage. In addition to this, old age pensions would be introduced and the Commonwealth Bank would be founded. What would make this particularly impressive was that Labor had done this largely in government with other political parties. But on the downside, this pledge would also, could, would also lead to the party's catastrophic splits. Sticking to this pledge by voting in Parliament on decisions made by the majority of the Federal Labor Party could be difficult at the best of times, but it would push these Labor MPs over the edge during crises. Added to this was a complicated relationship between the industrial wing of the party, its conference who set party policy, the federal executive who interpreted policy, and of course the caucus, which of course was the members of parliament. This would make it difficult in the best of times, but when faced with decisions of great principle, the party would divide and inevitably split. This would become most apparent during the First World War, or known later as the Great War. Labor had won government in 1914, at the start of this disastrous conflict. Andrew Fisher, the Labor Prime Minister, would promise at the time that his government would support Britain to the last man and last shilling. There was a genuine enthusiasm and indeed fervour for the war. The Anzac's landing at Gallipoli in April 1915 would be the high point of Australian unity in its great European configuration. But after 12 months of the war with terrible casualties, increased inflation, and increased inflation as a result of shortages and also censorship of the press, opposition to the war began to grow. The opening stirrings against the war would come. The Labor government's own constituents, the Labor movement, and the union movement, and with the Australian Workers' Union and the more radical industrial workers of the world, also known as the Wobblies, publishing their opposition to the war. Frank Anstey, a Labor MP who would express his own criticism of his government expressing concern on the price rises affecting working people. There were tensions within the Labour government which would lead to its inevitable downfall just 18 months later. On the 27th of October 1915, Prime Minister Andrew Fisher would be replaced by William Morris, Hughes, William Morris or better known as Billy Hughes. Fisher and Hughes had been clashing with each other and Fisher the Prime Minister was tired and he wanted out. So, Andrew Fisher would be, the new, would be appointed as the new High Commissioner for the, new, for, the, for the United Kingdom, which was a plum job. Billy Hughes should have been a good choice to replace Fisher. Hughes had been one of the founders of the Federal, of the federal Labor Party and been one of the key architects of its program. In addition to this, he'd written The Case for Labor, a campaign book to convince the voters at the 19 the, the at the nineteen ten election, to vote for the Young Labor Party. But the First World War had changed Hughes. Just two months after being sworn in as Prime Minister, Billy Hughes would travel to England in January of two thousand six, uh, January of nineteen sixteen. He would not return to Australia for another eight months. Billy Hughes would be fated in England with his extroverted, enthusiastic personality, a big hit in wartime London. Hughes would also become convinced of the one big policy change that was needed to further Australia's already stretched military contribution to the Great War. And that policy would be conscription. By the time Hughes had returned to Australia in August 1916, the unthinkable had occurred, with conservatives who had been his opponents most of his political life, supporting his road to Damascus conversion to conscription. His own party, on the other hand, including the union movement and -and rank-and-file members, were almost universally opposed to the policy of military conscription. Hughes would need both houses of parliament to pass the conscription legislation, but this was unlikely with the Federal Parliamentary Labor Party divided on the issue. Hughes decided then to hold a referendum on the question. The referendum would unleash forces that have been simmering below the surface within the the labor movement since the war had begun. The anti-conscriptionists were subject to censorship and visits from the police who seized their publications. There would also be a divide based on sectarian lines with prominent Roman Catholics, such as Archbishop Mannix in Victoria, campaigning strongly for, strongly for the no vote. In addition to this, the Easter uprising against English rule in Roman Catholic Ireland that occurred in April of 1916 fueled the, deficient, the fires of division even further. The referendum on 28 October 1916 would result in a narrow win for the no vote with 51% voting against the conscription proposal. Perhaps the emotions that the no vote would bring out would be one one of the reasons why the no vote would actually win out. I'd just like to quote a poem at the time that was actually against which campaigned for the no vote against conscription. It's called The Blood Vote. Why is your face so white, mother? Why do you choke for breath? Oh, I have dreamt in the night, my son, that I doomed a man to death. Why do you hide your hand, mother, and crouch it above it in dread? It beareth a dreadful brand, my son, the dead man's blood tis red. I hear his widow cry in the night, I hear his children weep. And always within my sight, O oh God, the dead man's blood doth leap. They pour, they put the dagger into my grasp, it seemed but a pencil then. I did not know it was a fiend, a gasp for the priceless blood of men. They gave me the ballot paper, the grim death warrant of doom. And I smugly sentenced the man to death in that dreadful little room. I put it inside the box of blood, nor thought of the man I'd slain, till at midnight came an overwhelming flood, God's word and the brand of Cain. Oh, my little son, O oh, my little son, pray God for your mother's soul, that the scarlet stain may be white again in God's great judgment roll. On the 14th of November, 1916, facing expulsion from the Australian Labor Party, Billy Hughes would walk out of the Labor Party forever, taking 25 of the 65 Labour parliamentarians with him. The parliamentarians who followed Billy Hughes were ex- immediately expelled from the Labour Party. These ex-Labour men would join with their previous opponents in the old, in the old Liberal Party, the former National Government, known as a national known as the Nationalist Party, under Billy Hughes as as the Prime Minister. It was a calamity for the Young Labour Party which had turned against itself with a savagery which mirrored Australian society at the height of the Great First World War. Men, legendary Labor men like Pierce, Spence, Holman and Hughes had been founders of the Federal Labor Party, but they were now hated figures detached from their party forever. It would be another 13 years before Labor would occupy the government government benches again. It would not be until 1929 that Labor would find itself again in government with a new Prime Minister, James Scullin. The post-World War I period had an Australia trying to get back to some sort of normalcy after the events of the Great War and the influenza pandemic. Billy Hughes would be overthrown as Prime Minister though in 1923 and replaced by Stanley Melbourne Bruce, a conservative. Bruce would serve as Prime Minister in coalition with what was now the newly established country party. Australian governments borrowed heavily from overseas banks during the 1920s, which was mainly from England, to finance infrastructure for the young nation. Immigration from Britain would be encouraged under the slogan, Men, Money and Markets. This borrowing would not provide a solid underpinning for the Australian economy. By 1929, Unemployment had risen to 10.1%. And the Bruce government was in deep conflict with the union movement. In October, 1929, the coalition government would go to the polls after members of Bruce's Nationalist Party crossed the floor to vote with Labor. The election on 12 October, 1929, Would result in a landslide victory for the Australian Labor Party. James Scullin and and the Labor government had won 15 seats, including the Prime Minister's seat of Flinders. Labor had finally regained power with a majority close to 30 seats. but there would be no honeymoon for the new government. Less than three weeks later, the United States stock exchange would crash, losing more than a third of its value. The world economy, along with Australia's, would collapse with it. The problem for Labor was that they had not been prepared for the election and the catastrophic results from what would be known as the Great Depression. It would be the workers that would suffer most, with unemployment skyrocketing after Labor was elected. By 1930, 20% of the workforce was unemployed. But yet it would not reach its peak until 1932, at 29% unemployment, which is one in three workers out of a job. A new Labour government would face an economic calamity in which it could not form a united response. The speed in which unemployment rose came as a complete shock to the new government and its prime minister, Jim Scullin. In the big cities of Sydney and Melbourne, there were tragic stories of starvation and families being evicted. It would not take long for the new government therefore to unravel. The economy over nineteen thirty thirty one would contract by ten percent, and the new government would then begin to implode. The caucus meetings, which were, of course, was a, which was the parliamentary meetings of the parliamentary Labour Party, were unsurprisingly, and I quote, protracted and stormy. Unquote. The democratic nature. And the Parliamentary Labor Party with a surprising amount of power invested in its caucus and not its leader would hamstrung the government from making quick and forthright economic decisions on mitigating the economic crisis. Added to this problem was that the Treasurer at the time, E.G. Theodore, would be forced to step down from Cabinet after a Royal Commission made adverse findings made against him. Scullin was a good and well-intentioned man, which would have made him a good Prime Minister in normal times. But these were not normal times. It is no surprise under these circumstances that the power vacuum will be filled by others. Sir Otto Niemeyer, a representative of the Bank of England, was invited by Prime Minister Scullin to visit Australia in 1930 to get his advice on how to handle the Great Depression. He said, advice was simple. Australia was living beyond its means. The standard of living for its people would have to be reduced and spending by its governments, particularly on social security, would have to be slashed. Government debt had increased dramatically during the 1920s, reaching 61% Of GDP by nineteen thirty, with a large chunk of debt owed to Australia's banks, owed to English banks, I should say, Nehemiah wanted to be clear that there will be no negotiation on debt payments. As a result of this, sections of the the labour movement will be furious. To quote from, to quote from a. To quote from a union to quote from a union uh, paper known as the worker and I quote to put it bluntly the workers of Australia must eat cheaper food and wear shabbier clothes and give up their few pleasures in order that Britain's wealthiest loafers may wallow still more grossly in sybriatic excess unquote The Labor Premier of New South Wales, Jack Lang, would provide an alternative plan to the Great Depression and the unemployment that was resulting with it. He proposed it involved not paying interest, bank interest, to British bondholders who had effectively lent money to Australian governments. Lang would strike a chord with those in the Labor movement, particularly those from New South Wales who wanted the federal government to take stronger. To take, to take to take stronger action and to help working people who are jobless, with some literally starving. In the meantime, the treasurer, Edward Granville Theodore, arguably the best economic and business mind in Parliament, had temporarily stood down as treasurer after those unfavourable findings from a royal commission into his business activities. In Theodore's absence, Joseph Lyons a more conservative man would act as treasurer while Theodore was trying to clear his name. Lyons, as I mentioned, was a conservative man by nature and and temperament, and would support a more orthodox approach to tackling the depression. This involved a deflationary approach which which had been advocated by the Bank of England. Australia's export revenue had dropped by 45% in 1930 and the Australian government was even having to ship its gold reserves to foreign lenders just so that they could meet their interest obligations. Just six months after Labor's election victory, the new government was already showing signs of division with no coherent policy to tackle the economic disaster that was eating away at the country's soul. But despite all of this, in late 1930, Australia's Prime Minister would inexplicably travel to England to attend the Imperial Conference. He would, re- he would not return for another six months. The acting Prime Minister in Scullin's a- a- absence would be Mr. J. Fenton. Fenton was an ally of the acting treasurer lines, and during his time of act- as being acting Prime Minister, would not agree to demands from the party's caucus to increase the money supply and even nationalize the party's banking system scullin would finally return to australia in early 1931 and would find the state of the labour government had gotten worse much worse the different factions issued their own take on the depression would hold their own separate meetings The three factions would be the Lyons faction,
1: led by Joseph Lyons,
0: the acting treasurer, who advocated the orthodox approach to fighting the depression, which involved decreased wages, major cuts in government spending, and ensuring the government debt payments were paid in full and on time. On the other hand was the Lang -Lang faction. that Jack Lang was the Premier of New South Wales and had dedicated followers in the federal parliament. They wanted to stop paying interest to these English banklanders and believed in additional government spending to restart the economy. Finally, there was Scullin, the embattled Prime Minister and those in the government that remained loyal to him. Scullin had tried to find some sort of middle middle ground, but in the end, he would support the hard-line approach to tackling the economic crisis. On Australia Day, 26 January 1931, E.G. Theodore was reappointed as Treasurer after a court exonerated him from any legal charges resulting from the Queensland Royal Commission into his activities. Shortly after this, Joseph Lyons and four other Labor's, Labor members of Parliament were cross the floor to join the Conservative Nationalist Party. By May of 1931, Lyons would lead this new anti-Labor party, which now had a different name Which is now now known as the United Australia Party. In addition to this, the New South Wales Labor Party members, also known as the Langites, would sit separately from their other Labor comrades in Parliament. It it would be. By June of 1931, with the Australian government facing insolvency, Scullin, along with his treasurer, Theodore, would agree to what would become known as the Premier's Plan. All states and federal governments would agree to decreases in spending of 20% and increases also in taxation. It was designed to balance the government's budgets. When the vote on the Premier's plan went to the vote in Parliament, 11 members of the Federal Parliament allowed a free vote, would defy their Prime Minister and vote against the plan. Soon after this, the entire New South Wales Labor Party, dominated by Jack Lang, would be expelled from the Labor Party, with the Federal Labor Party attempting to replace the New South Wales branch of the party.
1: There will be therefore
0: effectively two Labor parties in New South Wales, one run by Lang Labor and the other one loyal to the National or Federal Labor Party. The Labor Premier of Victoria, Mr Hogan, would also be expelled. It was the beginning of the end for the distressed government. They will be finally put out of its misery on 25 November 1931 with the government losing in a German motion, moved by Jack by Jack, Beasley, Jack Beasley, forever to be known as, and I quote, Stabber Beasley, unquote. A member, and, and he who was also a member of the Lang Labour faction. The next day, Scallon would have no other choice but to announce a general election for the House of Representatives. This election, on 19 December 1931, would be a catastrophe for the Australian Labor Party. They will be reduced to a rump, losing 21 seats. And in a final ignominy, four, seats of, four of these seats will be won by Lang Labour, who won seats against the official Federal Labor Party candidates. The Treasurer, Theodore, and two future Labor Prime Ministers, John Curtin, and Ben Shifley would also lose their seats. And the final humiliation would see the new Prime Minister leading the new anti-Labour United Australia Party. And this man who would be the new Prime Minister would be Joseph Lyons. The Australian Labor Party would face another decade in the wilderness. That's where we're going to end it there. Um, so I'd like to now sort of talk about the books of the day. The first one is, 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 the Australian La- is called The Australian Labour Party, The Story of the, La- the Labour Party by Mr George Healy, published in 1955 by Jacaranda Press, Brisbane. This is a really good book. It was written actually um, um, by a man by the name of George Healy who was a rank-and-file member of the Labour Party. He wrote this book to cover the ALP's history from its inception in the late 19th century right through to the the early 1950s. It's a great book that gives a detailed history of these years and I thoroughly recommend it. The next one is a story of the Federal Parliamentary Labor Party, True Believers, edited by John Faulkner and Stuart McIntyre and published by Alan and Unwin in 2001. This is a history of the Federal Labor Party for the 100 years from Federation in 2000, from Federation to 2001. This is a modern update of the, the Federal Labor Party and has chapters written by different authors, including journalists, political politicians and writers who come from all different parts of society which is one reason why I recommend this is a really good book because it does offer a very, uh, let me, how do I put it, a very, a very different and um, I would suggest a more, and a, very objective, a, a very objective view of the Labor Party over its history. Then finally, there is the ALP, A Short History of the Labor Party, written by Brian McKinley published by Heinemann Publishers Australia, Proprietary Limited, in 1981. This book provides a concise history of the Australian Labor Party to 1980. This is a great introduction to the history of the Australian Labor Party. Our next episode will be part two of Labor in Vain, which will pick up Labor's history from the 1930s and where will inevitably lead on to Labor's last great split. That of the 1950s. See you then, and take care. All the best, everybody, and goodbye.